0: I've got three words for you um, for this evening. I'm going to explain it to you with a piece of narrative and a piece of doctrine. And I'm going to explain three different words of mission and endurance and hope. So mission, endurance and hope. And in a way, it's those that kind of progress, if you like, of from mission through endurance and to hope that I'd like you to take away tonight. I know it sounds a bit weird, but if we could go to the New Testament letters first and then come back to, if you like, the narrative. And all of this is really to give you a sense of encouragement about mission. Mission and the great hope that we're called to as Christian believers has got both narrative and doctrine involved in it. There's a kind of a story. And you find that whether you're, let's say you're reading the book of Romans or the book of Acts. They're both about mission. They're both talked about in the context of mission Romans Ephesians Thessalonians they're all framed discussing what's going on how to encourage the church to move forward and the book of Acts tells you what happens in a similar way in the Old Testament something like the book of Nehemiah is a narrative story that tells you how it all happened but doesn't tell you an enormous amount about the doctrine the kind of the worldview to, to, to make that possible the, the the Church of God in every generation is called Two mission, and sometimes we tell that story as a story, and sometimes we tell it as a bit of doctrine and a bit of theory and I know some of the discussions that you guys have been having about missional communities, and in a way, some of that is is um, maybe about the sort of uh, uh, or if you like some of the workings. And we're still writing some of the stories in the sense that, that if we get this right, if we get mission happening locally on the ground and as, as small or medium sized units really getting serious about doing mission in our own communities and not just leaving it to somebody else that somebody else will invite somebody or somebody else will make those contacts, but we're actually going to do it ourselves, we will be in the process of writing a story. But at the moment, many of us don't have much of a story to tell. It's almost like taking a snapshot on one particular day in the book of Nehemiah. And it doesn't make a huge amount of sense. But when you stretch it all together and you've got the whole book of Nehemiah and you're like, this is great. This is an epic book. Awesome. What a cool story. I love it. But it doesn't give you that kind of moment of insight. Uh, This morning in church, Somebody did a little Bible study for us where they took the first lines of all of David's psalms and just read out the first line one after the other. And you realize that sometimes it's, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? And then he's like, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, you never let me down. And then he's saying, oh, my enemies are around me. And he's just, he's just lurching from one side to the other. And you think, was King David schizophrenic or bipolar manic depressive? No, he was a normal human being. (laughs) He was going through the call of God on his life, and it occasionally took him down through the depths and then up and to the heights again. That's why I think this little picture is, is so important, to kept, catch that perspective. And almost not to be surprised when sometimes things are tough, because if one thing is clear in Scripture, it is that sometimes things are tough. <laughs> like, hooray, we are finally a biblical church. We are, we are finding things difficult. We are, that occasionally, this is a struggle. Like, aha, the scriptures, they're with me at this particular point. <laughs> if you want to be living the kind of, the life on the plane where nothing ever goes wrong and you're always living a life of a victory, where every single prayer is answered in a moment, where every person you lay hands on is healed, where the dead are raised, where every mute person suddenly starts speaking in four languages, not just one, <laughs> you're going to have to read another Bible. <laughs> Or, or, or another prophetic book that you're going to have to pull together yourself. Because that is not the, that is not the expectation that the New Testament ever gives us for, for, for what is normative for the Christian life. It is filled with hope, filled with promise, filled with a God who sings over you when you are in a, in a time of trouble. It is filled with, with, with beauty. And yet it is also filled with the cross. Sometimes you feel like, I'd love to have a New Testament without a cross in it. I don't know if you ever feel that. And then I wouldn't have to kind of follow that bit. wouldn't have to, 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 to come through the cross, come through the depths in order to get to the heights again. And the doctrines are, uh, really, I want us to, to do a mini little Bible study on a couple of these things. And, uh, and um, if, just, if you open, have your Bibles, just flick them open for me, if you will. Just going to look at four little passages together, and I'm going to draw a couple of points out for you about mission, endurance, and hope, and tell you a couple of stories as well. The first passage is Romans 8 22 to 25. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved but hope that is seen is no hope at all who hopes for what he already has but if we hope for what we do not yet have we wait for it patiently and the word for patience there also goes quite nicely with the word for endurance 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2 look at that I'm just going to read these four passages together and then I'll see we'll see together that there's something of a theme that develops We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. This is Paul, Silas and Timothy as an apostolic team speaking to a baby church in Thessalonica in, in, in the Greek area, to the church of Thessalonica. We continue to remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, endurance and hope going together. Colossians one verse eleven, just flick the page back in my Bible don't know you might have to do two pages in yours and it 's a prayer it 's another prayer for a baby church. Paul spent a lot of his time in prayer for churches and church plants, a lot of time, and the way that he shapes his prayers is really informative for us and, and here is it is and you you will know this prayer, and you will probably not have stopped on this particular verse, which is verse eleven. For this reason, verse 9, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. I'll just stop there for a second. Strengthened with all power, those of you who love ancient Greek or just, um, occasionally love to feel that maybe somebody has read it once um this being strengthened with all power is taken from the the dunamis word meaning power it actually says to be empowered with all power it's the same same root word and so paul is there he's praying for this baby church and 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 he's starting to pray when he really rocks up the prayer When's he praying for the real power? When's he praying kind of double, triple, quadruple anointing? When is he praying for the kind of the double mantle upon the shoulders? The strengthened with all power, empowered with all power. When is he doing that? Is he doing it so that every single person we see signs and wonders are are always seeing this? It's almost as if Paul is saying that that I see all the time. I see extraordinary things happen all the time. I see people filled with the Holy Spirit. I see people come to Christ. I even see the dead raised. But when I really need to pray for the empowering power, the strengthening strength, the dynamic dynamite for the people of God, he prays for endurance. It's not what we think. When Paul is praying for a really gritty church that is going to see the difference And make a difference in their generation. He prays for endurance. He prays for endurance. Perseverance and strength to see it through to the end. And you think of passage after passage. In the Thessalonian church of your work, of your love and of your endurance. In the book of Revelation when John is describing himself to the local church. He says, I am a brother in endurance and in hope. of the the hope and endurance in Christ, he, he puts these two words together. The book of Hebrews is all about endure, persevere, let us persevere, let us press on, let us endure and go through the pain barrier and out the other side. And I think many of us, because we live in the West where we're told to buy now, pay later or pay never, and because we're used to not waiting for the things that we want, not working hard and saving for 20 years for the things that we really need. Because of that, we've we've fallen into the trap of thinking that our Christian life is in the same way, is that all we have to do is perhaps name it and claim it. And we probably don't have a theology that says that, but we have a heart that says that, that says, look, I've been praying for this thing for at least three weeks now. I need the answer. And and, and I'm speaking as a a member of the same culture as well, of of having a desperation to see the things that I want to happen, happen tomorrow or happen yesterday. We are not good with patience. We are not good with patience. We've got to, not everybody in this room is from the same culture, but we have to recognise that in the UK, patience is not something we are good at at the moment. Maybe our forebears once were good at it. They were once good at a 20, 30 or 50 year plan. But we as a generation and those coming up answer after us are not good at those lifetime plans, the kind of 20, 30, 40 year plans. We're like, let's give up tomorrow. And a lot of research has been done on the different generations, the, you know, the Gen X, the millennials, the, I, the net generation, and I don't know, the baby, the embryonic generation or whoever they are at the moment, the, the people not yet born, has said that by and large, The war generation soldiered on through, quite literally, and the veterans. They went through world wars, and they had an attitude that was shaped by that, both with grief and suffering, but an endurance. You either endured or you didn't survive. And it it, it bred a grittiness, and that grittiness was exactly what was needed for society, for the church. It was out of that when they came up with the whole idea of... um, a kind of national health service and a, and a welfare state and all of those kinds of things when people are saying I want to have a society that I'm working for and dying for that will care for the poor that will look after people the whole idea came out of suffering it doesn't come out of plenty people don't don't come up with ideas like that when it's all going fine they come up with it out of out of suffering and out of endurance The boomers came and it was bigger. Whatever was bigger, whatever was better, whatever could be planned, that's what we're going to do. And they were rather good at that. They built an extraordinary set of institutions across the world. Gen Xers came along and they decided that they were going to still stick it through, but they weren't going to be happy about it. (laughs) They were going to be cynical. They were going to be snide. They were going to take pot shots from the side. And um, essentially, it was a generation of disillusionment. They hadn't really... um, they stayed in the game, but they were disillusioned about it. They were cynical about it. And a great cynicism has infected the church, I would say. A great cynicism has infected the British church. Now, the millennials, that's, strictly speaking, people born 1977 and afterwards. I'm 75. I feel like my, a millennial at heart, uh, born 1975. But essentially, were. One of the ways that I describe them is that the generation who put their parents to bed. The the generation that grew up, and they were the ones who were having to tuck their parents in at night, by and large. Their parents were completely irresponsible, and you have a backlash. How on earth? There's only two ways against Generation X. Two possible scenarios. You either rebel even earlier, and in the time that we were living in Peckham, we spent seven years there, you see people deciding, OK, I'm not going gonna, gonna, to take drugs and sleep around and get blind drunk not at the age of 16, 18 or 22 as my parents generation used to go off the rails in their 20s and then and it gets lower and lower in fact they're taking hard drugs from 11 and they um, are, are working it through their early teens and by the time they hit 16 or 17 they've either decided to sober up again or they're in prison. That's, that's one way of taking it is that you you rebel even younger or you do something else, which is one of the only ways to rebel against rebelliousness is to conform. Does that make sense? (laughs) How do you rebel against rebelliousness? You conform. You say, sack it. I'm not going to take drugs. I'm going to grow organic carrots. I'm going (laughs) to, I'm not going to stay up all night doing this. I just want a nice job and I'm going to settle down and I'm I'm, going to do these things. And you see this extraordinary backlash to rebelliousness. And I think there's a lot of that going on. Um, the environmental movement, that I am going to be passionate about things. I am going to hope for something. I'm not going to be. The worst thing in the world is to be a cynical, burnt out old wreck like the generation before me. I do not want to be cynical and burnt out and unhappy. I'd rather give up first, (laughs) but I'm going to hold on to hope. So we have this dynamic that is stretched out, I would suggest, all across a generation and a a, a nation of holding on to hope, but being basically flaky as well. So we have this kind of dynamic that, that we haven't got the skills yet of endurance. We don't want to be cynical, which is staying in the game and just being um, narky about it and detached and kind of ironic. We basically we don't have an ironic generation, we 've got a hope-filled, essentially trusting generation, but one that is very, very um, is teetering on the edge of great disappointment because things are difficult and what we found the last three years, the highest levels of people not getting a job in years and years and years, that people feel that the social contract, if you like, that they've been sold for the last 18 years, that they have been betrayed by. Work hard, go to university, get yourself massively into debt and at the end you'll be able to pay some money and then it'll all work out again. So you do it, you go massively into debt, you work your way through university, have a great time and at the end of it you're jobless You're saddled with debt, personally, and the entire country is saddled with debt. The guys who got the free education have not only used it, squandered it, but they've changed the law, they've made us pay for the whole lot, and they've added so much debt onto it that none of us will ever be able to get our head above the parapet, and now... They're even overriding democracy in the EU and telling the telling the Greeks that they've got to you know depose their own prime minister if they want to have the bailout loan. We've got this kind of extraordinary nightmare scenario that is heading in front of us, and it is not a time where I see the hope rising, saying, "Woohoo! Okay, guys, let's do it. Let's get out and atom. Yes, we are the rising generation. We've got thirty years ahead of us, and we are going to take this nation for Christ. And we're going to plant churches and we're going to save money. We're going to tithe, and we're going to believe God for all of this. Instead a wave of discouragement has hit us and it's hit the churches even though we didn't construct it because it's hitting everybody else and we didn't realize how much of the cul- how much a part of the culture we were and now is a great opportunity because this discouragement it is biting increasingly hard and i would say this as as amy and i uh, my wife amy and i have been travelling around we have seen this wave of discouragement get deeper and deeper and deeper and it is affecting every church of every denomination. It doesn't seem to affect anything and yet just in the run-up to it for about 10 years God was speaking words of vision and hope and promise and prophecy. So what's going on here? How do we deal with hope and vision and it being hard and difficult and us facing discouragement? Was God lying when he sent us the vision? Were the people that were receiving the prophetic words, were they inaccurate? Were they just swept up in the moment? No, I do not believe that they were. I believe that many of those hopes and those visions, that that sense of here is here is a a message for a generation saying to people in their early 20s, here is something you can spend your life on rebuilding the church in this country, seeing every single community with a worshipping presence, seeing all of your friends who don't yet know Christ having the opportunity to hear the gospel and respond to him. This was something that many, many people said through their teenage years. Yes, count me in. Count me in. Count me in again at Soul Survivor. Count me in again at church on a Sunday. Count me in again. I'm signing up for it. Count me in. I want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. I want to be a hope-filled, positive, faith-filled gospel person. I want to see mission and social justice and the eradication of poverty. I want to see fair trade. I want to see people taken out of slavery and sex trafficking. I want to see dropping the debt and and setting the captives free. I want the spirit of the Lord set upon me and I'll see the people in darkness led into the light. These words of vision and prophecy are all scriptural and they're all a genuine call upon the church. But the circumstances are difficult and we find ourselves discouraged. And that is why Paul says, I pray for the empowering dynamic, dunamite, dynamite, dunamos to come and impact you in the very core of your being. What for? Endurance. For patience. For the power to get through this crud and come out the other side, yes, covered in the black stuff, but there on the other side. So, what if we've had to wade through piles of diarrhea to get to the place we need to get to? We've got there. And we will get washed down if necessary. Endurance. And it's almost as if, because we want everything yesterday, these passages, and I, and I, I could read you another 20 from the New Testament that basically talk about hope and endurance together, the two of them coming right together. And the New Testament church, dedicated to mission, knew that the thing standing in the way of successful hope-filled mission and the revivals was could the church stand up, could the church endure and push their way through it. And I think we need to take... um, encouragement from the fact that the Thessalonians the Colossians all of these churches did thrive and they did actually see their way through it to the end but part of their story the snapshot was there. Now several years ago Amy and I were here in Oxford um, I was just reminded as I walked in here of a meeting when i had just become the curate at St. Alday's, many years ago and I met together with all the other youth workers across the city we met together in a little room at the back here for uh, our first kind of cross-Oxford set of prayer meetings for all of the youth. And we had all of the different... Every single church with a youth worker represented here in this, in this room. And we set our hearts to something. And we, we had a prophetic word, of vision, of the city on fire for worship and for praise. And we said, OK, we're going to do it. We're going to call Oxford on Fire. We're going to gather all the youth workers together. And we're going to have a couple of events where every single Christian can pray for them. Within a couple of months of that prayer meeting... We managed to persuade the then vaguely famous band, but not quite so stratospheric band called Delirious, to come and, and, and do a concert here in the middle of Oxford. The only venue that we could get at the time, because I don't know if all the churches were kind of quite geared up for a gig yet, it was, it was back in the dark ages after all, um, was a working men's club on the Cowley Road that has now been turned into something else. So we got in there we said, yeah, we're going to have three or 400 people. And we had about 700 turn up to this worship event. And Delirious, I spoke to Martin Smith a couple of months ago. He still remembers it because the, 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 the floor wasn't really built for gigs. It was on the first floor. And it started to, the actual floor started to shake and go up and down in the middle of the floor, so much so that the speakers on the stage started to topple into... The middle of the crowd. And so it was the two of us to hold the speakers up against things. So I, I, I don't know if I can hear anything still to this day. I was at a delirious gig with a bl- the sound on absolute full volume, physically holding the speakers up um, <laughs> to stop them crushing people um, underneath. And, and we were worshipping, we were praying, and we, we did see some extraordinary things happen. Many waves of believers and generations coming through this city have seen extraordinary things happen. I remember the time Steve and I were in the, the same Christian union at the same time and the lightweight boat um, which some of our friends were in um, in, the, in, the, um, in the, the lightweight crew for the girls' team started becoming Christians one after the other after the other. There were two at the back and then they started... <laughs> salvation crept its way along the boat. <laughs> <laughs> from the back of the boat to the front and people, the stroke was getting really worried that they were about to become a Christian and they weren't quite sure what to do about it. And we were, we, the, the rumours were going around amongst many of our friends, you know, you mustn't hang out with this person because you're going to become a Christian. So whatever you do, don't do this or don't do that because you're going to become a Christian. We regularly had times where many of us were slain in the spirit in the middle of corn market and we couldn't move. We were absolutely under the power of the Holy Spirit in Corn Market, having all night prayer meetings in the theology faculty. Once I remember praying and, um, with some of my friends in the theology faculty, and we prayed that God would, would bring fire to the faculty, fire to the, the theology department of Oxford. And as we were there praying, the fire alarms of the theology, the theology faculty <laughs> rang and they went off. And the fire brigade had to be called to stop the fire that had been started by prayer alone. And there was, <laughs> there was no fire there. We had the most extraordinary time where we saw miracles happen. And, 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 and so many of our friends come to Christ. One of my friends came to Christ over that time and, and was a new believer. And we had a mission coming And we had, I think, 130 people sign up for a discipleship course off the back of our five-day, six-day mission. 130 people. It was so big, we had to have three separate follow-on versions of Alpha Course going on. I mean, as you know... The church politics still existed then, so they weren't, one of them was allowed to be called Alpha and some of them weren't. But basically it's the same kind of idea that you had 130 people signing up and many of our friends became believers over that time. One of them is now one of the main lecturers in New Testament theology at King's College London and is now my supervisor for my doctorate. <laughs> so wonderful things can happen and this city has seen waves of them. This very church is a testimony to waves and moves of the Holy Spirit in times gone by and so and it's the pleasure of God there's something extraordinary about God's whatever ridiculousness in a city of Oxford God seems to come back time and time again and call people to be in relationship with him and not just in this city but in all of the areas around Wycliffe who translated the Bible into English gathered a group of people together in and around Oxford students of theology and they were known as the poor preachers why <laughs> because they were poor and they preached. <laughs> and he, he, he taught them how to, to know the Gospels in English and to be able to preach in English and to go into all the surrounding villages in the countryside, the villages we now know, like Kidlington and Whitney and Wantage and, and, and Radley and Cumna and all of the villages around here preaching the Gospel and people came to Christ. Then there was a, a, a crackdown and um, all of that was banned for about 100 years. And there were only a few people, they were known as the Lollards, who still had the Bible, the illegal English Bible. And they were known as the Lollards because apparently they pray, their prayer walked wherever they went. And they, they mumbled, and la, 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 people thinking they're speaking in tongues. Or they were praying under their breaths all the time. And they were known as the Lollards because they were always praying under their breath. And then when the Reformation came and suddenly you were allowed to have Bibles again, they discovered that for 100 years, people had been reading their illegal English Bibles anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and... And there were communities dotted all across the nation that were ready to come on fire again. This is a city that burns people. And it's a city where a fire from God comes and takes it to the nations. This is a city that does both of those things. It's a significant place. From here, the world has been reached several times over. Several times over, not just like once We haven't just got one time in history you can look back at Oxford and say, look at that glory day. You can say, wow, look at that global revival that started in this city. Oh, and that one, and that one, and that one, at least four. Global revivals have found their their sort of foot in here. And that'd be Wycliffe, whether it be some of the Reformation, whether it's Wesley and the Whitfields, the Great Awakenings. There are a bunch of people who, before they were converted, were already called the Methodists because they were so dedicated to prayer and worship and visiting the poor and the sick. They were so methodical that they were given another nickname. I don't think we are living such distinctive lives that we even deserve a nickname. It's a kind of, I've got one, but it doesn't really say much about my theology. (laughs) But it's almost that sense in which things, crucibles create things. Crucibles testing times make the difference. If God is wanting to use you in this room and members of this church to be part of taking the gospel not only out of this city into all the surrounding towns and countrysides, to be part of a solution, to hold on to those prayers and those words that have been spoken in you and over you in these past 10 years, to hold on to those and be part of the solution, then some refining will be necessary. Because otherwise you will export crud. (laughs) You want to export gold. You want to export authentic, missional, gospel-driven Christianity. And there is so much of the world in us that the Lord sometimes allows testing times to take the dross away. It's almost a sign that God may have a plan for us, that we're finding things difficult. We're having struggles in our life or um, sicknesses or illnesses can happen. About 18 months ago, uh, my wife, Amy, and I had spent the last seven years in Peckham after a stint of about eight or nine years here in Oxford. And the Lord started to speak to us about planting again. And um, we've always thought that we've been downwardly socially mobile and sort of Christianly mobile. We were started off at a big church like St. Aldates, and then God sent us to about 120 people in the inner city. And then about 18 months ago, he said, start with kind of eight. So <laughs> it, has been, it has been a very refining process for us. There's, there's, no, there's no kind of juggernaut with us. We haven't got a big institution behind us. We've just got prayer and the Lord Jesus and a handful of people committed to what God has called us to do. And I'll be honest with you that it has been a testing time. And it forces you to look back at your motives to think, what did I have that was just part of the system or what was really my personal relationship with God what was really the gospel and as some of you are responding here to the idea of taking mission seriously again and and thinking of how we're going to be as a church a a neck of people all committed to mission and doing whether we call you missional communities or whatever name will emerge from among you you may well find that the endurance is the thing that you're praying for the most. Endurance may be the thing that you're praying for the most. It's interesting that almost every single passage about endurance in the New Testament is linked to the word hope. And there are two types of hope. One kind of hope is the hope of heaven. No more crying, no more pain. And the other kind of hope is the hope of answered prayers. And the things that we're longing for. When we're longing for a city and want to see things change. We're longing for a community or a people group. Or somebody who doesn't yet know the Lord. And we are hoping and we are praying. And that delay between the prayer and the, and the prayer and the answer in the, this life. Is sometimes the thing that starts to, to um, cause us to give. So that's why we need the endurance. I'm going to finish by reminding you of a Bible passage from Nehemiah. The third area. If any of you are part of starting or forming new missional communities or thinking about um, church planting, either now or in the future, may I suggest to you that the book of Nehemiah is possibly your number one handbook. I would call it a church planter's manual, book of Nehemiah. Mission, endurance and hope. Mission, endurance, and hope. Mission often starts with lament and with tears and with a sense of desperation. There's a man here called Helmut Tielicker, a German theologian. Much of his great theology came when the Allies were bombing, and all of the places he met in, he met in five or six places, every single one of them was bombed. And in the end, they went through a series of sermons under the trees in the forest at night with no lights. And 2,000 people used to come each week to hear what was being said. As he was stripped away, as he had nothing anymore, suddenly he realised that he had the Lord and he had the word of God. And he writes this at the beginning of a reprint of some of his sermons in the 1960s. Do you believe that Christianity is on the rise or in the decline? In recent years, I've repeatedly met with this question. The question is basically irrelevant where Christianity loses its public market value and no longer enjoys any prestige in the social structure, it may actually be thoroughly sound and healthy in substance. It may find expression in living vital congregations and the hour of promise may be imminent. Conversely, where it basks in the sunshine of public favour and perhaps enjoys the privilege of social status, it rot, lose its dynamic and become a liability, which is carried along only by virtue of the inertia inherent in tradition. Where Christianity loses its public market value, no longer enjoys any prestige in the social structure, it may actually be more sound and healthy, and it may find expression in living, vital congregations, and the hour of promise may be imminent. Conversely, the crowds may be hiding a rot at the heart of things. Crowds don't prove that you're dealing with a a vibrant church. But a vibrant church does lead to conversions and it does lead to hundreds and thousands and and numbers do matter, particularly where salvation is concerned. In mission, whenever lots of people come to Christ, the New Testament is quite clear, it always numbers them. (laughs) 153 fish and then you're going to have those people. Exactly how many people came to Christ on the day of Pentecost? I'm not saying numbers are not important. They're particularly important when thinking about salvation, people coming to Christ. So that question, is it on the rise or is it on the decline? I think many of us, I've I've mentioned one area of kind of cultural discouragement that we're trying to find our way through at the moment. We're not immune from it just because we're a church. But actually the statistics, as we look at them at the moment, for national Christianity in this country do not make for happy reading. We actually see after a little break in decline that almost all the churches that are growing are led by Nigerian pastors at the moment, which is a bit sad for me as I'm not a Nigerian pastor. Although we have seen a wonderful amount of people come to Christ. In this last year, even though we started about eight or 12 and a few other gathered on that first day, we're able to see it, about 16 people come to Christ in the first few months and i didn't even count a number of people who joined the church who didn't even tell me they weren't christians when they started coming so i'm saying so when did you become a christian oh well this church is the first one i've ever been to and i thought oh maybe you should do the alpha course we've seen it go the other way around a number of people who just started coming because we started as we have as a kind of missional community approach to things have actually found themselves being either drawn back after seven, eight years as atheists and just found themselves being drawn because they've seen something that is vibrant and authentic. Part of my only hope is that as we grow and we are beginning to grow, that we remember what we were called to in the first place and we keep that vital dynamic. And that's why I think medium-sized groups and communities are so important. If you're part of one at the moment and you're thinking about it, I think it's important because you can be authentic with 30 people. It's really easy to be non-vital in a crowd, to be non-authentic, to be a kind of second-rate disciple rather than on-fire disciple. If there's plenty of other people burning around you, maybe nobody will realise that your heart has gone dead. But if it's you and a handful of people, they can know who you are, they can pray with you, and they can help you through nurture. And I'll tell you, this little picture here is quite important because as we look over the next 30 40 years all of us who want to still be in churches that are full need to learn how to do a lot more construction work than we're doing at the moment there's a kind of ever decreasing circles many of us know people who are no longer in church who were five years ago true across the board and so we need to reseed. we need to be part of the solution for the next generation So Nehemiah does that, and the first thing he hears is actually bad news. He's sitting there, he's doing a job. He is a professional, he is involved in politics and the royal thing, his job is as a wine taster. A wine taster was a kind of advisor, but they were also known because they were so unbelievably trustworthy, they tasted the wine beforehand, not like a sommelier to discover which vintage it is and whether it has a good nose, although I'm sure those things were important. The idea of tasting it was to make sure it wasn't poisoned, because... The wine taster was able to put, the, anybody was able to put poison into a cup of wine and give it to you. And so you needed them to see them taking a cup, a, 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 a thing first before handing it on. And so therefore the wine taster had to be the most trusted person in your entire court. Because that person was the one person who had life or death over you five, six, seven times a day. They could kill you whenever they felt like it. Just by dropping a bit of poison into your, into your bottle. And so you trusted them more. And then as a result of that trustworthiness, they were your advisor. And you were there to keep them upbeat. So Nehemiah hears that his city has collapsed and Jerusalem is in ruins. His friends come to tell him about it. And he's he's really depressed, really, really depressed about it. In fact, he's so depressed, the king says, why are you looking so sad? He has tears pouring down his face. And he says, it's because of my nation. It's because of my town, my city, my nation. I just can't carry on with my life at the moment. And then the king says to him, so what do you want me to do about it? And Nehemiah says, send me. Mission sometimes starts with a burden, with even with tears, with lament, with a sense of, of grief as it did for Nehemiah. That call comes, the burden is laid upon him. Why are you looking so sad? Even the non-Christians around him, the the non-Judaizers, the people who had no relationship with Yahweh at all, they're like, what has happened to you? What's going on? And the mission was, the, the call of mission was so burdened on his soul that he actually wept in public. And then what we see for the rest of the next eight chapters is his journey of building and praying and fighting and enduring. Until right at the end, we see, Many, many more. A whole nother wave of people comes into Jerusalem and settles the land. Got eight, nine chapters and they are all about endurance. They're about building. Different types of opposition that come in. So, for example, um, in Nehemiah chapter four. And if any of you are going to do some church planting, you will probably um, face this as well. So Nehemiah, at the end of chapter two, he goes around the wall. He looks where all of the holes are. He sees the size of the task. He could feel slightly intimidated, but all he needed was me and a few good men in the middle of the night to set about doing it. It's so all you need, a few good people to stand with you to be part of the solution. And then he says, okay, let's start rebuilding. We can do this. They start the work. They divide an enormous work up into patches. I think for us, that means if, I, if we want to apply this to our nation at the moment, we look at the enormous job. We see churches quite literally in ruins around us. We see Christian Numbers declining. We see bits that are burnt out and bits that are crumbling and other bits that are standing. And there's a big job to be done. And he divides it up into families. Now, as I think about that, I think, well, in this country we've got different streams, we've got different networks, we've got different families of churches that all have to understand what their different responsibility is. And God will apportion out the tasks to us as churches if we want to be part of the solution. Lord, send me. I want to be a family. And as soon as they start that work of planting and of growing and taking seriously their responsibility, it's almost like you look after your patch, your sort of section of the wall, the thing that that God has directed you to, to restore and rebuild. And other families will do the same. And we will rebuild this wall. As soon as they start that, the neighbours get edgy. Sanballat starts criticising criticizing criticizing these guys should have known better they should have been part of the solution but it's interesting that they immediately turn against him they start to criticize and they start to mock they start a dirty tricks campaign they start to lie they start to send letters back on kind of legal bases coming up with spurious legal claims to try and have it shut down as well all of these things start to happen one after the other after the other and then they also get a little bit discouraged after all of this It says that we rebuilt the wall, verse chapter 4, until it reached half its height for the people worked with all of their heart. There's the great start. There's the yes, I'm up for this. And then the opposition starts. Samballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonite, the men of Ashdod heard the repairs had gone ahead. The gaps were being closed. They were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet the threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble, we can't rebuild the wall. And the enemy said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among you. We will kill them, put an end to the work. And then the Jews who lived near them kept, came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack you. That's a pretty devastating kind of, imagine yourself running a church plant, Okay. <laughs> You've had a vision, a burden, a call from God. You've started a few good... With all of your heart, with all of your energy, you've started doing it. And then they get angry. (laughs) The enemy gets really angry. With new birth, with new church plants, with new works of God. When Moses was born, an entire generation was slaughtered because the enemy was so angry. When Jesus was born, a whole city's young people were killed because the enemy was so angry. When baby churches are born... Satan gets angry. He loves death, remember. He hates life. Ballat and all of these guys are part of that. And then you see everybody else gets in on the act. The criticism it starts. The people of Judah, the people on the inside. They're gonna, somebody says, I'm going to attack you. The others say, yeah, they're going to attack you. Ten times over, they're going to get you, they're going to get you. And, and that taunting and the mockery and everything, it starts. And, and, it, and it wearies people down. But then they said, let's solve this. Okay, we are going to redouble our efforts. We're going to realise that we can't just build without being wise and without enduring, and we need to come up with a strategy so that we can pray and fight and build at the same time. Charles Spurgeon was involved in the most extraordinary church, one of the first mega churches in the world, 10,000 strong, 10 to 12,000 strong every Sunday, Metropolitan Tabernacle, 1860. Okay, ten thousand people in Elephant and Castle. They came up with a church planting strategy that, within one mile in every single direction as you were walking, you plant a church. They did it in Peckham. There were five churches in my little neighbourhood. All planted for the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Wherever you went, in the 1860s, many of those foundation stones laid personally by Charles Spurgeon. And they called their monthly magazine or their weekly magazine the Sword and the Trowel. based on this passage in Nehemiah. People who understand church planting know that Nehemiah is their handbook. You build and you fight. You have a sword and a trowel. You keep praying day and night. And then he says to them, fight for your family. As a kind of prayerful self-interest. They start saying, I'm going to pray and I'm going to fight and I'm going to build for my children and for my husband, my wife, for my homes for the generation coming up after me, there is too much at stake for me to sit at home and do nothing. I'm going to stay up all night if necessary, and I'm going to see this wall built. I'm going to see it through to the end. And further opposition happens for another two and a half chapters. And you work your way through. Chapter eight, finished. Ezra gathers together And they stand up and they start to read the scriptures. As they do, the Holy Spirit falls upon the whole of Israel. And they still weep. And they start to repent. And they start to be deeply impacted. A revival breaks out as they're reading the scriptures. They spent months laboring, working, praying, dealing with opposition, getting dirty through the night, sleepless nights. Whatever it took to get the job done. And then, like a a, a tidal wave of blessing breaks upon them the hope that has been deferred becomes a hope experienced and no longer as it says a hope deferred makes the heart sick as the proverbs say that but the hope comes the wall is rebuilt the blessing the anointing falls upon ezra and all of his people and then chapters 9 and 10 carry on that story and by 11 one in 10 people from the entire region comes to live in jerusalem They repopulate the city. One in ten people comes to build it, and this extraordinary burst of growth comes. So, I would love us to be able to respond to this mission, endurance, and hope. I think there's a negative and a positive response. A negative response is it's not really negative, but it's saying, you know, I am actually feeling a bit discouraged or I'm finding this quite tricky, or if I look across this year to come and think it's going to be like the year I've just had, I'm not sure I want this year to happen at all. So it may be that you haven't given up, you're not discouraged, you're just knackered. (laughs) And you just think, I don't know if I've got it in me. There's a quote on the wall of the Naval Academy in Annapolis that says, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And it may be, that it may just be your strength giving way like it was to those builders of the wall halfway through and and so that's the negative side of it but i think the positive side of it is back to that colossians 1 verse 1 sorry that one that colossians 1 verse 11 that empowering power to endure empowering power to endure i'm going to finish with one little story one of the people who's recently joined our new church that is, has existed for 13 months now <laughs> had been finding life a little bit tough and they just joined over the summer and have started to find some encouragement come. Early on in the summer he's always been really into American football and has started American football clubs and about a week, two weeks after joining the church we prayed with him that he would get a new job and he got a new job and it was a great job back in um, running youth ministry, evangelistic youth ministry in the town next door to us in Wickham. And he's always been a great fan of American football. And he asked and he he suddenly saw that one of his great heroes had been um, made ill, um, had, 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 had got an injury playing and was out of action for the rest of the season. And also that this guy had just become a Christian in the previous year. So he just fired off, I think, on Twitter or something like that, a little message to him to say, by the way, why don't you come to England and do some evangelistic mission with us on the other end this guy this has always been his hope his longing to somehow see his two dreams of evangelism and American football come together and so he just fired off while he was on holiday one day a kind of exploratory email sort of silly sort of moment the guy emailed straight back to say I'm up for it when can I come and he was on the other end praying this sense of, of calling, am I called to evangelism and ministry? How can I use my American football? And maybe God wants me to do something in Europe. The guy had never left America at all. He'd just been playing American football there in the NFL. He's a, he was a bruiser. I think he was known as the crusher or something. And he, he was now a Christian. Anyway, we are now two weeks into that. And this guy said that this has been, this, this guy called Sam, said this last week has been the most exciting week of, after 10 years of ministry in the local area. It's so exciting when after enduring, sometimes for a while, you get the answer to the prayers that you have been looking forward to. And if there's anything I want you guys to take away from tonight, it is do not give up on the prayers that you've started praying. Do not give up on the hope and the vision and the dreams, those prophetic words, those burdens that have been laid upon you, sometimes with tears. Do not give up. Do not give up. Press in, press on hang on in there. If you can't move forward anymore, just stand up and don't go backwards. That's it. Isn't it great in Ephesians? Just take a stand. If you can't move forward, and sometimes you really can't, the knees are bloody, the (laughs) head wounded, the clothes are hanging off in strips, you're an ugly sight, you can't think what to do. You can just stand, you can just sit down exactly where you are, but just don't go backwards. So why don't we stand? Why don't we do that? Why don't we just stand here? And ask for the Holy Spirit to come and I I really feel like we need to just acknowledge some of the hardship, some of maybe some of that discouragement, and then we're going to pray for that empowering power for endurance.